You know, it's been another really difficult week with fires and smoke on the West Coast and hurricanes on the East Coast. People's lives and their livelihoods are in danger, threatened. Even the air we breathe just seems to be toxic. You may know that this weekend is Rosh Hashanah in the Jewish faith, one of the high holy days. And this week, Israel closed once again due to COVID to try and stop a super spreader. So even our worship lives throughout the world are changing. It's difficult. I happened to be at the dentist this week for an appointment. And as I laid there with my mouth open, I heard from the dentist that one of the things they're dealing with in the dentist office is lots of people who are coming in with problems with their jaws and their teeth because of grinding, usually at night. TMJ. It is an anxious time. We're upset. We're worried. We're nervous. We feel like things are out of control. I get it. It is a stressful period. Dr. Kropp was a much beloved pastor of this church in decades gone by, and he was known to say, there's much to make us afraid in the world. There is much more in our faith to make us unafraid. I invite you and me to unclench for just a few moments here in worship. Let's listen for a word from the Lord in the midst of this time, as it comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. This is known as the parable of the laborers from Matthew 20. Listen for God's word for you. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. And when he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever's right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and he found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. So he said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. Well, when those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give 
to this last, the same as I give to you, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Almighty and gracious God, it is amazing grace that has brought us here this morning to receive a word from you. So speak to us now. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So an elementary school teacher once announced to her class that it was time for recess and asked them all to line up at the door in single file. Well, with that, all the kids jumped out of their chairs and desks and began to scramble for the line to get first in line. Because they knew that once you get to the playground, if you want preferred access to the swings and to the playground equipment, you need to be first in line. It was pandemonium in the classroom. Once they finally got lined up, the teacher walked over and went to the back of the line, and she led the kids to recess from the back of the line first seemed a little unfair to those who had fought for position to be first in line. But it had the intended effect. Because from then on, when the teacher asked the children to line up, there was no scramble to get first in place. They understood. Even if they felt a little cheated. But that was the intention of the teacher all along. The parable of... The laborers is unique to Matthew's gospel. This is a story not unlike last week's story about an unforgiving servant. Last week, Jesus confronted the tendency to receive forgiveness without extending it, without it becoming a part of your life. Too often, we aren't changed enough by this amazing grace that we receive from God. We don't ourselves become gracious and generous in forgiving others. This week, however, Jesus seems to confront a corresponding tendency that we have to feel we've been wronged when others receive easily or even gratuitously what we have worked so hard to obtain. Our sense of justice and fair play is just kind of offended when we read the story of this parable. It doesn't seem fair, does it? Jesus confronts our jealousies and our envy of others. Here, the landlord simply isn't playing by the rules. We have an owner who obviously is God in the parable, who's so generous, he almost seems reckless. The workers who show up late get paid the same amount as those who've worked for 12 hours in the heat of the day. It's just not fair. It's a little like the student who comes the last day of class and gets an A for the course. 
or like the employee who gets hired and works for one year and then gets the full retirement benefits. It's not right. It just doesn't seem fair. Our sense of fair play is offended. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven. It's not the best way necessarily to run a vineyard. And it's probably, quote, not intended as an example of proper labor management relations, at least according to one commentary. On the basis of the equality of an exchange, we expect those who have the shorter hours that they would be paid less. And the first hired came to the conclusion, that very conclusion, if one hour's work is worth a denarius, then 12 hours of work has to be worth at least 12 denarii. The first hired were angry. And according to the normal logic, they have a right to be angry. What seems to be generosity now appears kind of completely arbitrary in the part of the landowner, and so they complain. The last have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. I, I imagine that most of us, when we read the parable, we read ourselves into the narrative as those who've labored all day in the vineyard. We have earned everything we have received in life. It's hard work. It's ambition. That's what gets one ahead. You need determination. You need resolve. We live in a world of competition. Our culture is a culture of earners. We track the work hours that we work. We, task, we, we track our accomplishments that we've accomplished. And we track the money that we've invested. We spend lots of times earning, lots of time earning, earning money, earning vacation, or as it's called now, PTO, paid time off. We earn grades, we earn respect. We even earn frequent flyer miles, but nobody really cares about that anymore, at least not now. I remember years ago, decades ago, in my brother's wedding. At the reception, I was talking with one of my father's best friends, and he commented, you know, these kids these days, they're ending up where we began. Excuse me. They're beginning where we ended up. This is the generation that came through World War II. And they worked hard to be able to afford a house for years. And here my brother was just getting married, already owned a house. Lots of gifts that were present for their wedding. And I could tell that in the comment, there was just this slight bit of envy or jealousy that there was a generational shift taking place. So maybe the best way to approach this is to spiritualize this parable. This parable is really about those who first became Christians and those who came after them. Because everybody gets the same benefits in the kingdom of heaven. So it's a twist kind of on the parable of the prodigal son. The brother was jealous because his worthless, 
idiot brother who had squandered everything got the fatted calf. Many of the commentators take this kind of approach to the text. Jesus is really referring to the Jews who first responded to the grace of God, and now the Gentiles are coming to Jesus and entering the church. And the Gentiles are like the prodigal returning, and the Jews like the older brother who's been faithful all along. Or another slant is that perhaps the earliest Christians who suffered severely through the persecutions of the first century, now they're encountering Christians who are confessing Christ, but they've paid no, no price. They're coming into the church without the hardship of the early believers. And I, I imagine that even if we take kind of a spiritual reading of this text, we probably still read ourselves into the narrative as those who've served faithfully for a long time. We've been the ones who've ushered at services. We've prepared the elements for communion. We've washed dishes in the kitchen. We've served on committees and as officers on the session and the deacon board for years. We've taught Sunday school. We've stuffed envelopes in the church office. Now it's their turns. It's somebody else's turn. Where are these young people? We've faithfully given to the church for decades, we tell ourselves. Now it's their turn. They can come in here and they can take over and change all that we've worked so hard to preserve and maintain. Is that fair? Now, the truth of the matter is, every last one of us is an 11th hour worker. We are laborers in this vineyard, but we have come late to the party. We're all recipients of more than we deserve and more than we have a right to expect because this is amazing grace. In any church, there's always so much more work to do and many hands that are needed. Generational handoffs can be tricky and delicate. But I can tell you even now as I'm here in this contemporary worship service, the people that are here with me are hardworking, dedicated people who hope that the church will come to life. So the first thing I want to say is thank you. Thank you to the many people who have served faithfully for many years. Our vitality as a congregation is a direct result of your sacrifice and your faithfulness. Your generosity has built this church. Your dedication and hard work have been an extraordinary blessing. And many of you will serve this church for years to come, making sacrifices, supporting the ministries of the church. Thank you for how you've served in the past. Thank you for how you're serving now. And thank you for the ways in which you will serve in the future. But you see, Isaiah said it long ago, God's ways are not our ways. Jesus seems to indicate that unless we are willing to accept a reality that is so different than our perspective, 
a different set of values, a different standard procedure, then the possibility of grace remains closed to us. If we insist on the equality of the exchange, we'll not be able to accept grace. We'll continue to believe that we either have earned it or we need to earn it. Isn't that what Jesus is driving at in this parable? We have to think differently if we're going to understand the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't work like our economic policies. God is not an employer that gives us our just desserts. God is recklessly generous and kind. God is the landowner in this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like that. It may not be what we thought it would be or how we think it should be. It may not be the way we would like it to be. But that is how it is all the same. Either we take what belongs to God and we enter the kingdom of heaven by grace or we take what belongs to us and we go into a world that fulfills our expectations. But if you're going that way, you better be ready for a lot more grinding of teeth. In a time when so many millions of Americans are in the gig economy, and so many work as day laborers, and so many millions have lost their jobs, and the unemployment rate has skyrocketed to levels we haven't seen since the Great Depression, it would be a travesty to just spiritualize this parable. It may not be intended as a proper discourse on labor management relations, but nevertheless, maybe we need to rethink some of the ways that people work and receive compensation today. None of the late laborers were promised anything except, I will pay you whatever is right. They were not idle because it was their own fault. It was because no one would hire us. Now, those of us who've worked all day may feel justified in looking down on those who no one has hired and blame them as if it's entirely their own fault. We're learning a lot this year hearing more and more about the challenges that so many people face who come from different backgrounds, different from our own. We don't all begin this race to recess to the front of the line at the same place. We don't have equal access to education or the means of production. Some don't have computers or Wi-Fi internet at their home. If you're a person of color or a recent immigrant, you may be waiting all day for someone to hire you. Maybe we're going to have to rethink 
how so many others who are working in the vineyard with us get compensated. We may have to think differently about the way we treat one another in God's vineyard. But I know this for sure. One day, a payday is coming. And yet, there may be reason for hope. George Packer, writing in a recent article in The Atlantic, suggests, quote, there are in history what you could call plastic hours, namely crucial moments when it's possible to act, and if you move then, something happens, end quote. In such moments, a An ossified social order suddenly turns pliable. Prolonged stasis gives way to motion. People dare to hope. He then concludes the very first paragraph of his article. Are we living in a plastic hour? It feels that way. End quote. Not long ago, there was another plastic hour, the end of the Cold War. The end of the Cold War has turned out to be not the start of an era of peace, but instead an age of growing tribalism and ethnic and religious conflict, according to Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Region after region of the world has been reduced to what Thomas Hobbes calls the war of every man against every man, in which life becomes solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And we see evidence of that all around us. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs was the chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations in London, was knighted by the Queen in 2005 for his service to the community and his work with interfaith relations, and he sits now in the House of Lords in London. And he quoted this Oxford philosopher who noted that religious freedom was born in Europe in the 17th century after a devastating series of religious wars. All it took was a single shift from the belief that faith is the most important thing, therefore everyone should honor the one true faith. They shifted to the belief that faith is the most important thing. Therefore, everyone should be free to honor his or her own faith. And it brought to an end so much conflict. It may be a small shift in thinking, but it leads to vastly different ways of relating to others. We now seem to be engaged in conflict throughout the world, to determine whether that idea and, that, and the values that it engenders can endure. I wonder if there isn't another small shift in our thinking that might have a large impact. It's the difference between optimism and hope. Again, Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, how was it that the Jews continued to survive The answer that always came to me every time I studied it was hope. The Jewish people kept hope alive, and hope kept the Jewish people 
alive. And the word tikva, which is the Hebrew word for hope, is a key word in the Hebrew Bible. When Jews returned to the land of their birth and belonging in Israel in 1948, they chose as their national anthem, ha-tikva, the hope. Hope is different from optimism. I think one way or another for most of us, there's been some turning point where we've lost optimism about the future. Maybe it was World War II for some. Maybe it was Hiroshima or Stalinist Russia or the Cultural Revolution in China. Or maybe it was the pandemic. Or maybe it's been the police shootings or the riots in our cities or the failure of the philosophical foundations of Western society, at some point, many have come to no longer believe in the inevitability and limitlessness of progress. No longer believing in the ability of science and reason to solve the problems we're facing. But the death of optimism does not mean the death of hope. There's a fundamental difference between optimism and hope. Optimism is a passive condition. Hope is an active one. Here's Rabbi Sachs again. Optimism is the belief that the world's going to get better. Hope is the belief that if we work hard enough, together we might be able to make the world better. It does not require courage, just a kind of naivete, to be an optimist. But it requires a great deal of courage to have hope. No Jew, knowing what we do of history, can be an optimist, he writes. But no Jew, no believing Jew, can ever let go of hope. That is why, given that the 21st century is likely not to be an age of optimism... We really need an age of hope if we're going to avoid an age of tragedy. End quote. Friends, these are difficult days, I know. As we experience the birth pangs of some new way of living together. And there's less reason for optimism, but still great reason for hopefulness. (coughs) This might be a plastic hour, a crucial moment when it's possible to act. And if you move, then something happens. So maybe it's time for a little changed perspective. As 11th hour workers... Either we take what belongs to God and we enter the kingdom by grace or we take what belongs to us and we go on living in a world that fulfills our worst expectations. We get to choose whether we want to live in this upside-down world of the gospel with its distorted view of reality and it skews our own perspectives and makes us think differently Or we can continue to grind it out, thinking we'll get what is owed us and missing out on the amazing 
grace of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ died in this world so that we might inherit the other one. So let me finish with this. Let me just ask you. Are you a generous tipper? When you go out for dinner, when you engage someone at takeout, do you give them a generous tip or do you meet the lowest level that you can get by with? Well, let me make a suggestion. If you've been a recipient of this generous, amazing grace of God, next time that you order out, next time that you go to a restaurant, tip generously. These day laborers need it. And it may actually reflect something of the kingdom of heaven into this world by how we interact with one another. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.